Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to New Books in History. My name is Christine Lamberson and I'll be your host today. Today I'll be talking to Sam Matrani and we'll be talking about his new book, the Rise of the Chicago Police Department, Class and Conflict, 1850 to 1894. Uh, this book came out in 2013 with the University of Illinois Press. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you, Christine. Um, so let's just get started by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became a historian, and how you got interested in this topic. Well, like most people, I became a historian just by going to grad school. Um, <laughs> But what made me interested in this topic was that I've always been interested in the link between essentially business and government and how government helps shape class relations. This is actually something that interested me even as a child when I couldn't use any of those words. Um, I grew up partially in New York and partially in Vermont and seeing the contrast between those places and how they were organized always struck me as something interesting. But this particular project actually started interesting me when I was looking around in archives for a seminar paper in graduate school and came across what must have been one of the very first spreadsheets. And it was a document that had been produced by the police in 1855 in Chicago. It was a very poorly organized spreadsheet on a piece of paper that was cut into like a misshapen hexagon so that it had things going in many different directions. But it was basically like a record of all the different people they had arrested in six months, what their ethnicity was, what they'd been arrested for, what their jobs were. And this kind of fascinated me. Because clearly they hadn't even really figured out how to keep records or what they were supposed to keep track of. And so I wanted to look into this. And this made me think about where the police came from, how recent they might be or not might be, and uh, why they got built. Okay, great. And so why did you choose Chicago? Just because that's where you found this record? Well, that's where I found the record. And I'm initially intended to actually do a broader study that compared a number of cities. I thought about comparing the police to the Pinkertons. And when, the more I dug into it, the more it seemed like actually just looking at Chicago made the most sense. For one thing, there were like a few, um, not particularly academic, but at least factually existent books on the police histories in New York and Philadelphia. The, the Philadelphia one was better. But um, 
Chicago was like the place where all these institutions got built really fast because it's a 19th century city. It really grew up basically between the 1840s and it already had a million people by 1900. So it kind of appeared out of nowhere. Whereas in the East Coast cities, there's like these pre-existing institutions that got shaped into modern police departments. In Chicago, it just got created from scratch. And I thought that was actually an interesting way to look at the process because you could see this thing come out of nowhere. And I thought that made it almost a pure study possible. Gotcha. Um, So when did the police come about? Well, it's funny. They came about pretty recently. Like my stepmother loves to read mysteries and she reads all these historical mysteries that have somebody like a police detective working in like Renaissance Italy or whatever. And it turns out there's just nothing like that. The police actually don't get developed as a institution that we would at all recognize until essentially the industrial revolution. And even after the first police force in the world that we'd recognize as such is born in London, really in the early 19th century. Um, Before that you had other like, force institutions, but they were usually much more centrally controlled and not controlled by the city. And also the basic method of keeping social order in all kinds of different societies um, was much more local and much more about people that you knew. So if you're like a medieval peasant, you don't have a cop. You have a justice of the peace who's basically appointed by your lord if you're in England. In different societies, it worked somewhat differently. But even in colonial in the colonial U.S., in colonial America, I guess it wasn't the U.S. yet, you had um, a much more personal form of order keeping, partially because the cities were small, but partially because you didn't have class segregated neighborhoods and because people hung out with each other much more. So if you're an artisan in Boston in the 18th century, the way you make a living is by knowing rich people who will hire you. So you might even be a poor person, but you might know, let's say, John Hancock, who might be the richest man in Boston. He's going to hire you to make shoes for him or whatever. And you don't need a police force to keep order in that kind of society where even across class lines, you have all kinds of um, personal ties. So what I think drove this was the development of a new form of economy once you got to the mid-19th century. I see. So how did this process take place then? If you have, you have a lot of changes, of course, going on with industrializations, which sound like our a major part of that. And of course your book is about this process, but what do you see as the major driving factors in the creation of this new type of police force? Well, I think the basic driving factor is that everybody hates having a job. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, who's the, I just asked my students today, like, Oh, who's the person you hate the most who you've never been in love with? And their answer for all of them was their boss. Okay. Some of them, they tried to say their parents. I'm like, but you right. do love your parents, right? You do love your parents. Anyway, So why do people hate the boss? Well, it's because it's somebody who's telling you what to do, who's making money off of your labor. This is a very uncomfortable transition for people to go from being in the United States, in the North, independent farmers or independent artisans to being a wage worker. It's very uncomfortable. And even for people who came from um, Europe, who came to the U.S. as immigrants and were wage workers the whole time they were here, it still sets up this very uncomfortable relationship, actually on both sides. So I think what's really driving this is that you have this new relationship that's developing the economy. And this new relationship makes um, the, the ways that employers and workers relate to each other very potentially anonymous, because you can have these big workplaces like the railroads. To give you one example of this, in the 1850s, just the Illinois Central Railroad imported about 100,000 people from Ireland to Illinois to build the railroad. 
that's an unimaginable number mm-hmm. to a generation previous. Like at the time of the American Revolution, which is only 70 years before that, you had 10,000 people in Boston, which is one of the biggest cities. So for them to import 100,000 people, it means they don't know who these people are. They got to figure out how to control them. And how are they treating these railroad workers from Ireland and Illinois building the railroad? Well, you can imagine. So I think what's driving it is partially that elite people, wealthy people get very, very uncomfortable with these huge masses of people who are working for them who are kind of out of control. So I think that's a lot of the story is that you have the development of a wage labor economy, which creates a new kind of relationship that's partially anonymous and partially has a bunch of workers who, from the perspective of the rich, are out of control. That's the first part of the story. Okay. Um, So you have all these workers um, who the elites want to control. How do they go about, um, you know, setting up this type of police force? Or maybe another question is sort of related is why do they choose a police force as their method of dealing with this new uncomfortable relationship? That's a really good question. And I think it's partially that they don't choose it at first. They try all these different ways of trying to maintain order. And you can see this in the in the mid-19th century in the U.S. Like one of the big pushes that you get in that time period is a push for temperance, which is the idea that people should be stopped from drinking. And you get some laws passed, like the idea that saloons should be closed on Sunday. Well, this is because there's a perception that all these immigrants coming in, especially from Ireland and Germany, are drinking all the time. And maybe some of them were drinking all the time. And this is right when the, the sort of Protestant elite in the U.S. is deciding not to drink so much. So how do you keep people from drinking? Well, they don't initially say, let's create a police force to stop people from drinking. That even today seems pretty insane. What they first do is they have all these religious pushes. They have people hand out flyers, hand out pamphlets, have revival meetings. And this actually works for some people, but it doesn't work basically to bring people under control. Then they come up with all these different plans. To give an example, one of the mayors of Chicago, the one with the best name, Long John Wentworth, he proposed that at one point what should be established is a a, um, respectable home on every block in the city. And that the the person who lived in that respectable home should know everyone on the block and make sure that they all kind of stay in line, like modeling it after the family. And he thought that wayward um, unemployed people should be put out to the farm to work in the countryside around Chicago. So it was like, let's take the old system of of social control and try to impose it on a new situation. Of course, that never happened. And it never happened because, for one thing, those respectable middle class people don't want to live in the working class neighborhood. And for another thing, the like Irish immigrant or the German immigrant doesn't really want some like lawyer living on his block trying to tell him what to do and not to drink on Sunday, which is his one day off. So a lot of the problem is that at first, no one quite understands what the problem is. The other side of this is that there's a lot of ethnic tension in the early days. Like today we have the, um, the idea that all the, that the cops are Irish, that the Irish have always been police. That's totally not what the first police are. At first, the police were in one way aimed against the Irish, and they wouldn't hire Irish people onto the force at all. They were native-born, and there was this nativist trend within the early creation of the police. But that creates a big problem also, because if you have all these native-born police who hate the Irish and who join the police force in order to control the Irish, patrolling the Irish neighborhoods, that's not going to work well. So all these different things that they try don't work. And in a way, it's because of the failure of the early attempts to form something that's not quite like the modern police that we get the modern police, because it is what seems to work the best. Mm -hmm. The other example, by the way, which I should mention, 
is that, of course, there's all kinds of private detective agencies, private security forces from the very beginning, just like there are today. And these private forces can do certain things. So to give an example, the Pinkertons in the 1850s, the railroads come together and they hire the Pinkertons to guard their property. You know, you've seen Jesse James robbing the trains and stuff. This is actually a real problem at a certain point because the trains are unguarded. They're going across hundreds of miles of open land. There's nobody there. You know, they can have one guard on the train, but people can steal stuff. Or even the workers on the railroads who aren't paid very much can steal stuff. So the Pinkertons are founded to protect railroad property. And there's other private security guards like that all over the place. But they can do certain things like protect railroad property. They can't do others, like control a whole neighborhood of working class people who might be organizing, for instance, to build a strike or something like that. Gotcha. And so the police are able to do this better because of their more daily uh, daily work as well as their larger mandate, so to speak, or their larger, um, I don't know uh, what the word is, um, their larger duties, so to speak, right? Is that... The gist of it? Well, it's actually interesting because I was thinking of having a subtitle for this book, which is something around the lines of the struggle for legitimacy. And I think that that was actually not so easy. In the end, what you just said is exactly right. That the police wind up having to do all kinds of things other than just cracking heads in order to become a legitimate institution that people basically take for granted. But that took a while for them to figure that out. So to give you a couple examples of this, um, the most important example, actually, is in the 1880s. So in Chicago in 1877, you have this huge strike. It actually was a national strike. And when it came to Chicago, the police put it down in a really bloody, violent way. There was this big battle called the Battle of the Halstead Viaduct, which is actually a viaduct pretty close to where I live now. And the police killed a bunch of people, beat up an unknown number of other people. Sometimes people give a number, but I'm always kind of uh, wary of those numbers of how many people the police killed in a certain day in the 1870s. Nonetheless, this was something which made the police actually more legitimate to the employers of the day, but much less legitimate to ordinary working class people. So coming after that, the police had to reestablish legitimacy. In the 1880s, they started publicizing all kinds of things that they were doing to help people. And some of these were real, like they found lost children. They became the main force that would take people to the hospital. And they had these um, new horse-drawn carts which, had, which were pretty big for the time. And at first they thought, oh, these horse-drawn carts will be useful to take prisoners to jail. But actually a lot of what they did was just take people to the doctor or they would show up and help people out from some kind of immediate emergency. The other thing they did is they just set up these telegraph call boxes all over the city. So you could go into the call box. There was no telephones yet, but you could turn a dial that would indicate what your problem was. So on the one extreme, it could be riot. Oh, there's a riot going on. I'll call the police and push a button and it would get a telegraph sent to the police station, which would say riot. Probably that didn't happen very much, that the police found out about a riot by a telegraph. But you could also put, like, sick. And so you could call the police, and they would actually come and take you to the hospital. So this made the police much more legitimate in the eyes of ordinary people than they might have been earlier. And, of course, they also then start hiring immigrants from all the different neighborhoods. The Irish are the most important example, but at that time in Chicago, you have a huge number of Germans living in the city, too. The Germans are much more mixed in their class background than the Irish, but a lot of Germans play a very big role on the police department. And so this makes them much more legitimate than a force like the Pinkertons. Um, I'll tell one more story, mm-hmm. uh, which was in, uh, in 1886, there's a strike before the Haymarket strike. Sorry, 1885, there's a strike at a place called McCormick Reaper Works. This is one of the biggest factories in Chicago at the time. 
where they built these big reaping machines, which would be sold out in the countryside. It was an extremely important factory in the city. And the strike um, was took place, the first strike took place when the police were really under orders to try to pull back from breaking any strikes in the city. This is partially because there was this liberal mayor, Carter Harrison, who was trying to win the support of the unions. And it was also partially something that the police leadership themselves promoted as a way to rehabilitate the police in the eyes of workers so they wouldn't just be seen as like a tool of the employing class. So the police don't attack this strike. The police let the workers set up a picket line. Because of this, the McCormick's, actually it's Cyrus McCormick Jr., because his dad just died and he inherited the company, not a good time to inherit the company, he decides to hire the Pinkertons. And the Pinkertons will smash the strike. Well, what happens is that the workers have this running battle with the Pinkertons and totally defeat them. The workers burn their um, their omnibus, which they're trying to use to bring scabs through the picket lines. And the workers, the strikers, basically take a couple of the Pinkertons captive. The Pinkertons had fired on the workers, and the workers take their guns. And the police, because they were ordered not to interfere with the strike, they actually have to arrest them, the Pinkertons, because the Pinkertons did fire on these, on these uh, strikers. So in this case, where the police don't intervene, it's clear the Pinkertons simply cannot do what Cyrus McCormick Jr. or the employers more generally want them to do, because there's, you know, a couple thousand strikers at this factory, and there's probably a few hundred people in the crowd, and there's like a dozen Pinkertons. The police, on the other hand, they can mobilize a real force. So the police are both more legitimate and also able to assemble a much bigger force at a specific point than any kind of other institution that could have been developed. Interesting. So I have a question thinking about exactly those stories that you just told and thinking about Carter Harrison's reforms. I mean, one of the things that your book talks about is how he's trying to add to this legitimacy by appealing to all of these groups of people that it seemed like the previous mayors and the previous um, police backers, so to speak, are trying to control, right? The very people that were perhaps causing the disorder that the police are supposed to regain order over, right? So how do his reforms, how does this decision not to interfere with these strikers in a way that creates more legitimacy with the workers, but seems directly opposed to the employer's interests in the way that the employers had previously, or uh, directly opposed to the employer's interests and the reason that the employers wanted the police around in the first place? How does this affect that kind of class dynamic? That's a really good question, and it's actually super complicated and something that historians debate. But I'm not going to tell you what the other historians say. I'm just going to tell you what I think about this. That sounds good. <laughs> so I think that um, the basic story here is that Carter Harrison has a pretty far-sighted vision of how to deal with this really deep class conflict in Chicago. I think one thing which you have to wrap your head around to understand this context is that really these people kind of hated each other the employers, and many workers, not all workers. There's this really big and powerful and militant movement of workers who want to make a revolution. There are some thousands of anarchists in Chicago. Some thousands isn't a huge number, but it's actually a percentage of the population of the city. And they are armed. They have their own clubs, which practice shooting. They have a number of like little militia detachments. And they have just been repressed really brutally by their employers. Like, we're not talking about just a strike like, oh, there's a picket line. The workers want to raise. The employers don't. They kind of come to a compromise. That's not what these strikes are like. These are strikes where 
The employers are trying to shoot down the strikers, fire them all, and replace them with other people. And the workers are trying to really, using the only tool they have, which is violence, block people from entering the plants. So this is a really deeply divided place. Also, the whole myth of um, what the American dream means at this moment is undergoing a big transition. So in the earlier period, the whole concept of the American dream, if you can call it that, had been that you would get your own farm or maybe your own little artisanal shop. You could be a blacksmith. That's clearly not going to happen to any of these workers by the 1870s, 1880s. There's no way you're going to become the new Cyrus McCormick if you're working at Cyrus McCormick Reaper Works. You can work on a streetcar line. You're not going to get to own that streetcar line. This is before they had public transit. Streetcar lines were owned by private companies, etc. You're not going to own the Illinois Central Railroad starting off as a brakeman. That's just not going to happen. And people know this. So this, this resentment is really big. And this idea that maybe you can get rich is out there, but workers don't buy it. Meanwhile, employers still have the old idea that, well, we made it. And why can't they? If you're poor, it's your fault. If you're a worker, it's your fault. So there's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of hatred across class lines. There's a lot of illegitimacy in the system as a whole. You know, like I said, there's a few thousand people in Chicago alone who regularly discuss and read and say, we need to get rid of capitalism. Workers should take over these factories. They don't have a very clear idea of what that means. I don't want to exaggerate. Um, sometimes in like a liberal take on this, they get rewritten as liberals. Like, oh, the anarchists were basically just liberals. That's not true. These were not just liberals. They weren't just out for free speech rights. They really wanted to overthrow capitalism. Okay, so you have this very divided city. And there have been a bunch of already bloody conflicts by the 1880s. So Harrison's far-sighted view is that in the short run, we need to pull back from crushing all the workers. We need to pull back from just using repression. And by we, Carter Harrison was very consciously a representative of the employing class. He'd been a politician for a long time. He'd been for crushing the strike in 1877. He was someone who was a liberal, but a liberal who identified himself and was start to finish someone who was linked to the employers in the city. So he thought from our perspective as employers, we need to tamp down this class conflict. In the short run, Harrison argued, this might mean that somebody has to pay a bit of a raise, somebody might lose a strike, that we might even have some workers elected onto the city council in different positions who push for a few reforms, but in the long run, it will ensure the stability of our city. So Harrison, in that way, is sort of somebody who I would link to, like FDR, who I think is doing a similar thing. But the problem is, of course, that if you own a business, you don't think necessarily in the long run in the interests of your class. You think about, how am I going to make a profit this quarter, this year? So increasingly by the end of 1885, Carter Harrison's policies come under big attack by an increasing share of employers. One example linking to the story I just gave is Cyrus McCormick. Cyrus McCormick was a Democrat because his family had come from Virginia and the Southerners in general were Democrats. I don't know if your listeners know this, but if you don't, then the Democrats were the party of the slaveholders. They were the party of the Confederacy in the Civil War and a lot of the white rich folks from the South were Democrats through and through, right? The KKK was still going at this time, and it was essentially just a, a branch of the Democratic Party in the South. In the North, the Democrats appealed to immigrant workers often by saying, we're not like your Republican bosses. So Carter, Carter Harrison was backed by one thin layer of employers. Cyrus McCormick was one of the most important. But as you can imagine, after Carter Harrison refuses to send in the police to break a strike, Cyrus McCormick Jr.'s Reaper Works, he says, well, forget you. Carter Harrison. I'm not backing you anymore. 
And this comes from many different employers who increasingly push Harrison to abandon his policy of letting strikes go. And by 1886, before Haymarket, which people maybe think is looming in the future, and it is, Carter Harrison decided, forget it. All right, I'm done with this, like, appeasing workers thing. I'm going to crush strikes. And he breaks a bunch of strikes. The first one is this big streetcar strike where Carter Harrison marches with the police and the police smash heads. And the guy who's in charge of it is this dude named John Bonfield. It's actually funny because not only do I live near where that um, Halstead Street viaduct battle happened, I also live near a street called Bonfield Street. This guy was like the most brutal cop in Chicago history until the current recent period. But anyway, John Bonfield crushed the strike. Really, they clubbed the police, crushed, you know, clubbed many workers. They even beat up a bunch of people who were like laying pipe in the street near where the strikers had a picket line. They just clubbed everyone on the street. And um, the unions who liked Cutter Harrison, they said, oh, Cutter Harrison, it's okay. Will you fire John Bonfield? We know it wasn't you. Harrison doesn't do it. Harrison promotes John Bonfield, this brutal cop. So Harrison's policy had shifted by the time you get this 1885 streetcar strike. And then in 1886, there's another strike at McCormick Reaper Works. And this time, Harrison orders in the cops and they break the strike. So Harrison's able to carry out this policy of trying to rehabilitate the police in the, image of, in the eyes of the workers for a while. But eventually, he's kind of caught in the middle. You know, he can't carry that out too long without coming under lots of pressure from employers. Gotcha. So the... One of the things that you're telling or one of the stories that you're telling is about this kind of consolidation of these two different class identities, right? That Harrison is, is caught in the middle of, right? If if I'm understanding correctly, right? So we're going to have a consolidation of the business class identity as well as a consolidation of the working class identity, right? And so do these other business owners, are they, I mean, as you say, they have immediate business concerns, but how do they envision this future police force working within the context of cracking heads without legitimacy. How, how are they envisioning um, responding to Harrison's reforms in a way that's going to be effective, if that makes sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that part of the answer is that of course they are divided. So there's a range of opinions among this business class. Um, first, I think your point about them coming to an identity is really good. That's exactly what's happening. And they're not just coming to an identity abstractly. They're forming all these organizations. There's the Citizens Association of Chicago and the Commercial Club of Chicago are the most important. These are like self-consciously organizations where the richest business people of Chicago meet and they talk about all the issues of the day. And they'll even set up all kinds of subcommittees. For instance, they have a committee on smoke. They have a committee on noise, on different kinds of nuisances, a committee on the police. And so these employer organizations, commercial club is probably the most important by the 1880s, but the Citizens Association is super important too. These clubs of employers, um, they get together and they talk about what they want to do. And within their meetings, we don't have minutes, but we have some records of the things they discussed. They for sure had arguments and they didn't agree on exactly what to do. So um, Philip Armour is an example of one of the most far-seeing employers. He was a meatpacking magnate. And he kind of understood that there's a balance. So at a certain moment, he backed Harrison and he argues that, yes, we need to legitimize the police. At another moment, he argues, okay, we've gone far enough down this road. Now we really need to break some of these strikes because it's getting out of hand. So I think there's a a kind of radical wing of employers who want to break heads all the time. But I think a lot of them came to see they had to find some balance. 
But the other thing that's important here is that this um, conclusion that a lot of them reach, people like Philip Armour, he doesn't come to this from the start. It's not like he's building his business with the idea, what we need to do is build this powerful police force that can both be legitimate and can crack heads. He comes to that realization over the course of the decades of class conflict that he himself sees. So I don't know if that answers it. But yeah. there's, there's one other big important point here, which I think people forget, which is that increasingly um, what the employers universally want to do is remove the police from democratic control. In the period before we get a formal police system like we have now, essentially anything like policing was done by elected sheriffs. And elected sheriffs could appoint constables or they could, um, for instance, um, round up a posse if they needed a bunch of people. But who's in a posse? It's just like the people who live around there, wherever the sheriff happens to be. And if a sheriff's elected and we can say elections are imperfect, which is clearly true, nonetheless, they have to campaign. They have to be kind of popular. You can't be the sheriff of a neighborhood and also be really hated by the people in that neighborhood before cracking heads. In fact, you see this still today. For instance, where I live in Chicago, we have a sheriff, um, Tom Dart, and he, he takes a kind of much more liberal stance towards all kinds of policing issues than the actual police department does. So he complains about when they close mental health facilities because all these people with mental health problems wind up in the Cook County Jail, which the sheriff is responsible for maintaining. The police chief doesn't really mention any of that stuff today. Why? Well, the police chief is appointed by the mayor, but then once you get below that level, there is really no democratic control of the police. They become professional. And in this case, what the business leaders come up with is this idea of making the police professional as a way of making it seem to be a public service. So you want a professional engineer running your, your water department, right? You want a professional um, sanitation engineer figuring out how to make sure that you collect trash in an intelligent way. It's a city service that everybody should get. In fact, policing is really different from that. But ideologically, what these elites, along with the um, leadership of the police department, develop is an ideology of professionalism that can apply to the police and that can then remove policing from the groundwork, you know, from the framework of democracy. So, no, you're not going to get to elect the cop on the beat in your neighborhood. The cop on the beat is going to be a professional, led by a professional hierarchy, modeled after the military and also modeled after business. So this whole ideology that they develop really effectively shapes what the police are. So within that context, it seems like if you were guessing without, of course, any historical knowledge, you would think that a police force that becomes professional um, might not obviously be on the side of business leaders all the time, especially since your average policeman presumably is not an elite, really. So how do the business leaders go about um, thinking that they're creating this professional force that's not going to be answer answerable to democratic forces, but yet is still going to be protecting the business interests as opposed to suddenly being on the side of the working class interests who they might you might think they would have more in common with? That's a really good question. And actually, there's moments when they're not so sure, like after Carter Harrison pulls the police back from breaking strikes, when he decides to then again break strikes, there's a couple of police officers and even some leaders of the police who seem to maybe not be cool with that. And they get fired or pushed to the side or demoted. And the ones who are willing to break heads get promoted. So part of it, of course, is just through their ability to have the mayor's ear at all times. Right. The mayor becomes this really important position in making sure the police are on the side of business leaps and push come to shove. 
But there's a couple of other issues involved here. One of them is that there's not a big strike every day. Like, not 1% of what the police do, even in the 19th century, is breaking these strikes. The strikes are not so important for what the police do on a daily basis. What's important about them is that they're the moments when the elite decide they have to rebuild the police or shape them to make sure they can serve their interests. But most of the time, what the cop is doing on the beat is walking in a you know certain area and looking for disorderly conduct, which means people getting drunk on the street or whatever. So it's not like the elite need to make sure the police are on their side every day. What helps them make sure that each individual professional police officer is going to defend their system is it, of course, it is their system. They set up the system in general, and it serves their interests, the rules, the laws. And on top of that, um, the police only kind of have one tool, and that tool is essentially violence. They can kidnap you, called arresting. They can beat you up, right? They can lock you in jail. In the extreme, they can shoot you. But they're charged with dealing with all kinds of social problems for which violence is kind of a bizarre answer. Like to give an example that I think is really telling in the 19th century, you have this huge growth in prostitution. And this is because you have all kinds of really impoverished women. Some of them are um, widows. Some of them are just young women who ran away from home. Some of them are undoubtedly orphans. There's not a lot of jobs for women in the city. And everybody kind of knows this, including the police. Like the police have this conference on prostitution and they say, well, we know that prostitution really dramatically increases when there is um, an economic downturn. They call them depressions, right? They didn't use the nicety of recession. Then they called everyone a re- depression. There's a depression. There's people out of work. We see all these women flooding into Chicago working as prostitutes. Okay. And they kind of know, well, locking these prostitutes up does not solve that problem. You know, you arrest somebody for a night and you put them in jail. And now what? Well, now you feed them for one night and then you let them go. And then they have the same exact problem, which is how am I going to eat? So the police even know this is a bad solution. But it comes to be the solution that everybody has. So if you're the cop on the beat, you can't decide to be on the prostitute side. You know, you can give them some money out of your own pocket, but that's not going to work very well. You can try to arrest them. That's about all you can do. So you can arrest them or not arrest them. Those are your choices. So how do you wind up being on the side of the prostitute? Even if you're a cop who comes out of a family that has also poor people in your family, maybe your sister was a prostitute for a little while, although, you know, what are you going to do when you see somebody on the street? You don't have much of a solution. So I think a lot of it is that the tools the police have at their disposal more or less push them to increasingly see, okay, what I can do is either do what I'm supposed to, which is arrest people who break the law, or not do what I'm supposed to, which is kind of turn a blind eye to it. And of course, cops do both of those things in different moments. But in either case, it's very hard to see how you could, given the tools at your disposal, given your training, actually work on the side of workers against their bosses to make maybe, let's say, more jobs available. Gotcha. So one of the things that you're talking about there is you're suggesting that, um, you know, they, they do have some choice, of course, in arresting or not arresting. But one of the things I thought was quite interesting about your book, um, kind of moving in a slightly different direction, is you talk a lot about how um, what laws are being enforced, especially in those kind of early days that there's lots of laws on the books. And those, of course, are not all actually being enforced by the police. And I think that this is something that if you are uh, interested in and spend a lot of time following or thinking about modern policing and thinking yeah. about things like the drug war, right? This is always at the forefront of your mind. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how and who got to choose which laws were enforced. 
That's a really good question. I mean, it's actually kind of difficult because the law is sort of meaningless if nobody's going to enforce it, right? I mean, if you agree with the law, you're going to obey it anyway, and then you don't need the law. Sometimes my students will joke with me about this, and they'll say, well, you need a law against murder. And I'm like, well, you know what? If there was no law against murder, most of us still would probably never kill anyone. It's not really the law that keeps me from killing people. It's like I don't really want to kill people, mm -hmm. right? And if you're decided I'm going to kill somebody, you're not going to think, well, I would kill this person, but I know it's against the law. Maybe the threat of punishment keeps you from doing it. Maybe I don't want to kill this person because I don't want to spend the rest of my life in jail. But that's not actually about the law. That's about the police and the prisons. And, of course, this is true in the 19th century, too. So you get this interesting mix. At first, when they finally get a police force, it seems to sort of work. The people who run Chicago develop this real taste for it. And they, at first, really overreach. And they start passing all these laws, which is just no way the police could possibly enforce. Laws trying to control people roller skating or skinny dipping or whatever. I mean, yeah, probably actually it's a bad idea to skinny dip in the Chicago River, actually, even by this time <laughs> I'm talking about. But it's not like the police are really going to stop you from doing this if you decide to. There's not enough cops to, to do that. So on the one hand, they try to pass all these laws and get the police to enforce them. Um, the one that actually is the most contentious, of course, is about drinking. So they're constantly trying to get the police to close down saloons or not close down saloons to enforce these big liquor license fees or to not enforce big liquor license fees. Whenever they try to enforce drinking laws, it's super contentious because people like to drink. Whenever they try to enforce Sunday closing laws in particular, which say saloons have to be closed on Sundays, it really, really angers a lot of workers because that's their one day off. And the police don't like doing that. Like the last thing the police really want to do is try to close all the saloons on Sunday. So whenever the city government tries to do these things that the police don't like, they resist. And they just often just don't do it, or they do it really poorly. And so we can see this today, where actually police have quite a bit of leeway on things like drug laws. Of course, there's big incentives given by the federal government today to try to get the police to enforce drug laws. Right? They get all kinds of money. They can seize money from people and accuse them of being drug dealers, and they don't even have to actually prove that they were drug dealers to keep the money, all kinds of things like that. But we also all kind of know if you're like a 65-year-old white dude living in the suburbs and you smoke weed, the chances of you going to jail are essentially zero, right? Mm -hmm. And if you are like a young black person in the streets of Chicago in a poor neighborhood, then the chances of going to jail are clearly not zero, right? Whatever they are, right. if you're smoking weed, the same amount of weed, you're buying it from the same person, but really different outcomes because of how the police react with different people. And that shows actually what their leeway is. This is a danger of having police. You're giving people a lot of individual power. So which laws get enforced is always very, very contentious. And I think that people who study the law often overstate the importance of the law when it comes especially to controlling behavior on the street. Yeah, the law of contract makes a big difference in business relations. And there it's much harder to avoid obeying it. But when it comes to the kinds of laws that the police are actually involved in, uh, the law is sort of relevant. The other thing which is interesting is, in this period, the police don't even know the law. They don't get any legal training until well into the 1900s. So what they usually do is arrest people and then come up with a reason for arresting them later. Throughout the whole period that my book covers, the majority of arrests are for drunk and disorderly conduct. Either drinking, disorderly conduct, or drunk and disorderly. Well, what does that even mean, disorderly conduct? pretty vague. And they don't have breathalyzers. So they say, oh, this guy's drunk. Well, actually being drunk is only kind of illegal. Mm -hmm. 
So a lot of this is really up to an individual police officer on the street enforcing order as that cop understands it and not really enforcing the law. And in this case, presumably, you also have, and your book talks about this, but you also have a similar sort of phenomenon as we have today with the example you just gave of the 65-year-old white dude versus the inner city black teenager, for example, where you also have disproportionate um, or particular ethnicities that are much more likely to be being arrested for, uh, for drunk and disorderly, correct? Absolutely. You know, obviously they don't go to the downtown bars where the rich business people hang out and drink sometimes and go through them and smash heads and arrest people for being disorderly. They don't do that. The police never do that. Um, they do close them at one moment on Sundays, and it really angers, actually, the, the wealthy downtown business drinkers who then mobilize against the police. But, of course, in a working-class Irish neighborhood, they're much more likely to go around and crack heads. And that's true the whole time. Now, one of the things which is interesting is the whole period I study – Really, there are almost no black people in Chicago, very, very tiny portion of the population. And if there had been big numbers, the story would be different from the beginning. And the main change that happens between the period that I study and today is the great migration of black people to the north. And then the police have an even much more problematic relationship with black neighborhoods, problematic being a nice word, from the beginning. Mm -hmm. The period I'm studying, it's essentially a class question. And the class question is solved where the poorest group for much of the period that I'm looking at, it's the Irish. And the Irish do get hired into the police in pretty big numbers. And so this ethnic division, which is really dominant in the beginning of my story, really essentially ends by the end of my story. By the time you get into the 1890s, the police have a kind of method of dealing with different new ethnic groups, which is you hire them on the force, some of them. You have the people from that ethnicity patrol that neighborhood. You have the development of a, of an, a political machine, usually by the Democrats, but also the Republicans, which is a way of bringing in a few people from every neighborhood into city government, giving patronage jobs, like being a cop, working for the sanitation department, whatever, and then integrating all these different working class neighborhoods into the city government in a way that really doesn't challenge the system, which also makes it so that the police aren't so solely targeting one group or another. So I have a couple of questions that are kind of bigger picture questions. Um, so one of them is thinking about uh, beyond the period that you study. Um, you're talking a lot about state building. And one of the things that, you know, history buffs, history professors, history students alike uh, might think about when they're reading about your book or reading your book or read about your book or hearing about your book is the progressive era that's coming after this. And especially as we talk a lot about, uh, temperance movements and drinking laws and those sorts of things. So how is this development of the police? What does this tell us about the development of the state and about the future use of state power by groups like the progressives? That's a really good question. Um, and I think the answer is kind of complicated, but I'm going to give you the simple version. But as I give this simple version, bear in mind that the story is actually more complicated than this. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the progressive era is a reaction to the same kind of class conflict I'm talking about. There's a historian who argues that actually Carter Harrison and people like him are like the precursor to the progressive era. And I think that's basically right. There's this deep class conflict in the late 19th century, and it's centered in cities. And it's clearly kind of unsustainable. It makes everyone uncomfortable. Um, and so the reaction to that is, okay, maybe we need some kind of reform. We need some kind of reform that will make the system not quite so um, contentious. How are we going to do that? We're going to use the state. I actually think that there's not as much um, state building in the progressive era as people think. There's a direction of 
already existing state institutions towards new ends. But a lot of the actual state institutions are built in the late 19th century. And the police, I think, are one of the most important. If the police weren't there, then nobody would imagine a lot of the progressive reforms that they come up with soon after the police are built. Because you kind of have a force to enforce the regulations they're talking about. You've got to have this model of having a force to even think about having fire inspectors. And they start doing a lot of those things in the period I'm, I'm studying by asking the police to do things which are impossible for the police to actually do. So one example of this is they ask the police to do a lot of fire inspections. There's no way the police are going to be able to do this because there's not enough of them and they have too many things they're supposed to do. But the idea is there because now the municipal government has a force that it can deploy. Similarly, they ask the police to do a lot of health um, regulations, make sure people aren't dumping you know, pig offal into the lake where they get their drinking water from, stuff like this. But the police don't actually do it. But the idea is there because now the city government has a force they can deploy. And so I think a lot of the progressive reforms flow from that. The progressive reforms that flow from the elite trying to solve their class conflict problems, I think, are made possible by the police because they deal with the, the most violent form of that class conflict and make the system a little safer. And also the police give them the idea, oh, maybe we can use the state to solve some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So these police forces, these earlier conflicts sort of make... Uh, this the middle class, the progressive class, the elite class comfortable with this kind of state power as a means of enforcing control on other classes. Exactly. And the idea that the business people in the U.S. are hostile to the state and have always been is just a lie. It's absolutely not true. They're hostile to the state going after their stuff like everybody is, but they're not hostile to the state per se. Mm hmm. So and I, it is revealing on the relationship between business and government that you started out thinking about. Yes, absolutely. I thought I was going to write a different project, but this one actually answered what I was interested in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very good. Always good sign. Uh, so I have another question thinking kind of beyond the bounds of your book, but thinking about some of the broader implications of it. And that is to think about how the story in Chicago mirrors or is different than or is similar to what's going on in the rest of the country. Uh, in particular, thinking, and you talk a little bit about how in other similar cities, you mentioned at the beginning that in other cities that are industrializing, they're also seeing the rise of police forces. And I'm wondering, is is this a solely northern industrial city story? What's going on in the South? How does this fit in with an era of reconstruction? Or is that, are those places where police forces develop later? It's interesting, actually, in in one way, the first police force in the country is actually in New Orleans. In the South, police totally come out of slave patrols and they come out of the attempt to control slaves in the pre-Civil War era. And so in New Orleans, the big problem is, yeah, you've got a whole group of people who you need to control who are owned, right, slaves. It's a completely different problem. Um, But it's this problem which mirrors the northern problem of industrial workers much earlier, in fact, So you could say in 1830s in Chicago, you don't have a big working class. Even in New York, by the 1820s, you have a lot of artisans still or people working in very small shops. It's not like a modern working class yet. In 1820s, 1830s in New Orleans, you're already getting this big group of slaves passing through. And so the first things which are sort of like police forces in those southern cities, when I say southern cities, I'm really talking about essentially New Orleans. Um, They look much more um, like forces which are directly aimed at controlling slaves, and they don't have to have the pretense of being on the slave's side. So it's, in a way, even more brutal and even less legitimate to the people they're controlling than anything in the North. And so as the police develop in the South, they are very consciously, from start to finish, designed 
to control black people. And during Reconstruction, there's a fight over this to an extent, but the police from start to finish are on the side of people who want to get rid of Reconstruction governments, and they're controlled by city elites in Atlanta, in New Orleans, in Savannah, you name the place. That's essentially the story. So into the 20th century, do you see more kind of um, borrowing of ideas between the North and the South or a little bit more of a move towards thinking about these problems as similar or thinking about the techniques of police as similar? I think what you get is a myth in the North that the South is more backwards and the South is more brutal. And that here up in the North, we're the civilized ones who kind of know how to run things better. Mm-hmm. So the Northerners aren't going to borrow Southern ideas because they think they're better than them. Or if anything, they'll borrow Southern ideas about race once you get the Great Migration. In the South, I think the police are dealing with a slightly different problem. But you get in the South is, again, like I said, a somewhat even more brutal use of policing against black people, which then, of course, bleeds into the policing of whites. Like, to give you one, one famous example, the whole convict labor chain gang system mm-hmm. is a system to fund police where in many towns and even not so small places, police will arrest black people passing through, almost always for vagrancy. And they will then give them a fine, which there's no way that people can can pay. And to pay off the fine, they will lease out the convict to all kinds of places, to the railroads. The railroads in the South are mostly built after the Civil War, mostly built by essentially slaves, but they're technically convicts leased to the railroad company to build it. Or the the coal mines that are linked to the steel industry in Birmingham, which eventually is U.S. steel, people working in them are essentially black people who are just moving from one place to another, arrested for vagrancy by the police, and then leased out. And that drives this push to arrest more people because that's where they get their funding from. So it's a slightly different problem, but it's definitely related once you get a huge number of black people moving to the north. And that point, you have some northerners who look to the south of, oh, how do they deal with this problem? As, they under, as the police forces in the North understand it. But it's still in a really different context. Mm-hmm. So there's no southern city that's like Chicago by 1900. Today there is, but in 1900, no. I see. Okay, so one more question, thinking again uh, a little bit beyond the bounds of your book, and that is, of course, as we already mentioned, the obvious thing to think about when thinking about your book is is today, right? What the lessons are or what um, what people who are thinking about police reform or thinking about police departments just in general, the place of the police in our society might learn from your book. And are there a couple of uh, kind of takeaway messages that you think are really important or a couple of things that you think we should all remember or revise our understanding of the police on the basis of knowing the story of the 19th century creation of the Chicago Police Department? Sure. I like that question. Uh, that's my favorite question yet. Oh, good. <laughs> my first answer is that the police were not created to deal with crime, and policing is an extremely bad way of dealing with crime. Crime is not caused by some crazy people out there. This is not criminal minds where there's somebody who, like, you know, is just some crazy serial killer who you need to track down by finding their sock and knowing that their mom abused them in 1920 <laughs> and they had the kid by the lake, right? That's not how it works. Crime is caused by the fact that there are not jobs by the fact that they're not social services people, by mental illness, and those problems are not well addressed by force and violence. So that's the first lesson. Let's be real. If you want to deal with the problem of crime, give everybody a job. I think if everybody had the right to a job at a decent pay, you'd see crime plummet. And you could then have elected constables who dealt with the problem. The second thing is that when the police are pushed back from being so brutal, it's usually when there's a fight. 
I don't mean a fight like literally a physical fist fight with the police, because that's generally a bad idea. Um, I mean a fight in the sense that people organize and push back against them. They push back against police brutality. The more people organize and resist what the police are imposing and what the society generally is imposing, the more that working class and poor people organize, the better off they are. And the more they look to politicians to solve their problems, the worse off they are. So if we think that a Democrat or Republican is going to solve this or replacing Bratton in New York with somebody else or whatever, um, that's not going to solve it, I don't think. What's going to solve it is if people stay mobilized organize themselves, resist what the police do, and also see that policing is just a bad solution to crime. Because it's true, crime's a real problem in poor neighborhoods today. It is. But if you think the police are there to help you deal with it, many individuals are, but the tools they have at their disposal just aren't appropriate. Mm-hmm. All right. Those are some good things to think about. So we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so we usually traditionally end with a question to ask you what you're up to now, what you're working on or thinking about for your future projects. Well, I'm thinking about a project about the way that the U.S. got this huge state when nobody likes the state. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it would be like a broader project into the 20th century, looking at how a series of crises led to the addition of new forces onto the state. So the Progressive Era would be one of these. The New Deal would be another, like World War II and the Cold War. And putting these all together to show how every time there's a crisis, the solution to it is to turn to the state. But the solution is always sold as being temporary, but then it isn't temporary. So we have in the U.S. the biggest state probably that any society has ever created, if you count all of its different parts. But it's like totally illegitimate to many, many people, both on the left and the right. So that's the question I'm really interested in exploring next. That sounds great. Well, I hope we can have you back on uh, when you get that project done. Thank you. Uh, Well, thank you so much for telling us about your book today and have a good rest of the afternoon. Thank you, Christine. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.